0: Good morning. Desert Island Discs. That's what came to me. I was sitting just over there. Tom was doing the second sermon in his series on the bank of heaven. I was writing notes and just for a moment, my mind turned to the fact that he was standing here and in a few weeks time, I'd be on the same spot. And I suppose I just said, well, Lord, what am I going to say? Desert Island Discs. I thought, what? I thought, tell my life story in music? No, but straight away that changed to, uh, whether you call them Desert Island Scriptures. Because what came to me, and I I don't normally preach like this, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person, give me a passage or give me a subject, and I'll do that. I won't mention myself necessarily. Um... But this seemed to imply that I should talk something about my life story around the scriptures that have been of particular significance to me in my life. And I do so in the hope that you also will go through that kind of exercise where God has spoken to you and certain things have happened in your life. And, and you record that, you, you, you keep that in your heart whenever um, someone's reading scripture and you come across that verse, that comes to mind straight away of how the Lord dealt with you. So I'm aiming to teach uh, life lessons. Okay, they're my life lessons. Not all of them, you'll be glad to say. Uh, we may get through four of them. Uh, but we shall, we shall see how we, how we go. I'm 10 years old. I've attended Sunday school from infancy, (laughs) and in Lent, there's a mission to children. No chocolate, no special events, it's a children's mission. So every Tuesday night in Lent, there's going to be time in the church hall, led by the lady parish worker, and, I'm up for it. I'm up for most, most things, I suppose. And each week there's a memory verse to learn. So there are going to be six um, verses. And the big uh, pull on this is that if you can say all six verses at the end, then you'll be given a New Testament. Well, I'm up for that as well. And here is the memory verse from week one. From Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You see, I still remember it. I can still quote it from the authorized version, which is what we were using. And this led, as she spoke to the children, this led to a very simple illustration using the technology of the time, good old flannel graph. Okay, and she put up what's going to appear now, which is a simple red heart. Scarlet, crimson are the words used in our special text. And she described the effect of sin in our lives, and how our need is to be changed, to be cleansed from our sin. Years later, I was reading The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy, and what struck me uh, is a description of someone In the first chapter, it just describes the landscape empty of human beings, and just describes it in its starkness, but its beauty. And then the second chapter, you're introduced to an old man walking along a road, an old white-haired man. And in the distance, on the same road he's traveling, and going in the same direction, is some kind of vehicle. And as he gets closer, he finds it's a kind of a wagon, and someone is leading uh, a horse. And then uh, Hardy writes this, when he drew nearer, he, the old man, perceived it to be a spring van, ordinary in shape, but singular in color, this being a lurid red. The driver walked beside it, and like his van, he was completely red. One dye of that tincture covered his clothes, the cap upon his head, his boots, his face, and his hands. And he was not temporarily overlaid with the color, it permeated him. And the old man knew the meaning of this. The traveler with the cart was a reddleman, a person whose vocation it was to supply farmers with redding for their sheep. The red ochre that they used to mark the sheep in the uh, mating season to know which of the ewes have been covered. And the man who, who dealt in this was absolutely covered in it. And this is such, to me, a picture of what sin is. I'm sure anybody dealing with, with scarlet dye has the same problem, <laughs> that if it gets anywhere than what, where they want it to be, it's going to stain everything. And what we have here is a picture of the human heart stained with sin it permeates all the way through and my 10 year old heart understood that was true of me but then of course she went on peeled off the red heart the flannel graph and revealed a white heart underneath symbolizing a pure heart a heart that has been cleansed and changed with the hope that the filth of sin can be washed away. So I want to just spend a moment looking at that verse in Isaiah chapter 1, and it's at verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord, in the NIV version. Not that that's there if you see what I mean. Though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The first chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah is is a kind of introduction to the man and the message. He's God's spokesman at the time in which he lives. He lives during the reigns of four Israelite kings and His message basically is this, that things have to change. The first part of that chapter describes the people of Israel as a rebellious people. Though they are said to be the people of God, people God's own choice, they are rebelling against him and his ways. And they're living Uh, as as if God did not exist. And Isaiah says, look around you. Look where you're living. The countryside, it's like a wasteland. Is this the land flowing with milk and honey that you were promised when you came into this land? Why is it a wasteland? It's a wasteland because you have turned back from your God and and so the blessing no longer flows. You simply have to stop doing wrong and learn to do what is right. Who are the people in society to be looked after? Who are to be cared for, cherished? Why are you not doing it? And when it comes to worship, oh, they were worshiping But the complaint was, your worship is all external. It's all what can be seen. But there's nothing going on in your heart. You're not engaging with God. When you come to worship, you sing the songs, you do all this stuff, you're praying, etc., etc. But it's not from the heart. And that's where the problem is. Your heart must be changed. Your heart is is like something that is stained and dyed crimson. But it can be washed. It can be cleansed. God is a God of grace. God is desiring to, to welcome you back, as it were, into true fellowship with him. Why don't you turn? There's a promise given in this first chapter right at its close. A promise, but also a warning. The promise, come back to God with all your heart. And blessing will again flow. But the warning, that if you continue to go on in your own way, then it will only get worse. At 10 years old, I knew what sin was when that was presented to me. But at 10, I knew what forgiveness was because that very night, I don't know how I got to that night, but I got ready for bed. And before getting into bed, I knelt at my bedside. I just knew that that was what I had to do. No one had told me what to pray. So there was no formula going around. It was just talk to God. Tell him that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. I mean, the lady had told me, of course, that Jesus had died for my sin. So I asked for him to come and help me and to come into my life. And I was unprepared for anything. No one had said, well, if you do this, then this will happen. Oh, no. So I was taken by surprise. When I lay back in bed, and I felt as if I was like lying on the beach. I I grew up at the seaside. Lying on the beach with the waves rolling up over me. It was just wave after wave after peace coming over me and I knew my prayer had been heard, and I knew I was a new creation. I'd been washed clean. Didn't understand it fully, but I had, and I have had from that very moment, the assurance of being reconciled to God. I'm 12 years old. By personal reading, or more than likely through hearing a sermon, I have a new key verse in my life. I've got no other story to go with it, like, like there is with that Isaiah one. But there's a new and a relevant scripture that has been presented to me. And it's from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it's chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Even at 12, I recognize that in this verse there are mysteries too deep for me to really understand. But there's sufficient there that I do understand and I hold it dear. It reminds me of another illustration that was used uh, at the time, perhaps um, in a slightly different way, but I'm going to use it now. It reminds me of the, the scene at Jesus' crucifixion. Have you seen some image such as this? three crosses, Jesus on the central cross and the thieves on either side. And they're colored, there's the red, <laughs> stained with sin for, for the two thieves. And I, I can identify myself with a thief. I recognize that I am a sinner. And there was one of those thieves, praise God, who who recognized that he was there being punished, dying slowly, and it was fully justified because of all that he had done. But he looks towards another man, another man who is impaled to a cross. And he says to him, that dying man, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees that man on the cross, not like himself, but a king. A king of a kingdom. It's amazing faith, isn't it? To identify Jesus in that way. And that is, is like an act of, of repentance. Lord, remember me. But he is the one who receives those gracious words. I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. I identify myself with that sinner But there's a glorious exchange, isn't there? A glorious exchange. In that moment when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is put to my account and my sin is handed over to him. He bears my sin in his body on the tree. But I, Receive his righteousness. I'm cleansed. I'm new. I'm forgiven. That's the verse that I want to describe the situation I am in. My life has changed because Christ has made the difference. Let's just focus on Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul is writing to the churches in the region of Galatia who have started to go off the rails. Despite the teaching of Jesus that all are welcome in his kingdom, despite even the uh, ministry of the first apostles, the, uh, the way we are saved, the way that we are brought back to God is by his grace not through anything we have done. The Galatian churches were influenced by those who came from a Jewish background and said, you have to also keep the law. And there were real issues at the time, especially people separating themselves. You know, well, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jewish Christian or I'm a Gentile Christian and And there was separation in the churches. And it was all down to how are we saved? And Paul has to write and say, salvation is through faith. And it's by God's grace. It's not achieved by the things we do. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. We look to him alone. And Paul, suddenly from talking about the situation generally, makes it very, very personal. I, I, I keeps coming in. Me, me, me. Not in a, not in a bad way, but he's, he, the way to settle the argument, he says, well, this is how I see myself. I have been crucified with Christ. It's as if I were on the cross. I'm the one being punished for sin. Nevertheless, I live. I'm I'm still alive. Because I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven by the grace of God. And the life I now live, it's, it's the life of Christ in me. And that makes all the difference to me. And you Galatians need to get back to that too. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He makes it very personal. Do you feel that way too? Do you feel that Jesus Christ died for you? For me? Can you make it that personal? Can you step into that place? My sin upon him. His righteousness put to my account. That verse is wonderful to me. At 12, I grasp what I can of the mystery. That I am identified with Christ. I in him, and he in my. I now need, I know, to assume the ways and the mind of Christ. A hymn has become a favorite to me. You may know it. I found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart, still closely twine those ties which naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. I'm 14 years old. I'm at youth club in the same church hall that I went to all those years before. Some friends are in the back room, there's a table tennis table out and the ball's going everywhere and suddenly the ball disappears. Disappears behind a bookcase. So I'm not playing at the time, but so I go hunting for it, pull the bookcase out and reach behind to get uh, the ball. But there's something else behind the bookcase. Something has slipped down. It's a picture. And the string on it is broken, so it must have fallen down some time ago, and people had forgotten it was there. Well, I inquire about this picture because I'm taken by it. I'm allowed to keep it. Well, actually, they said, just stick it in the bin. But no, I I thought I'm not gonna do that. So I take it home and I repair the string. And my mother wasn't over pleased, but I hung it (laughs) over my bed. The picture is, is just a kind of a general picture that I used to have in my illustrated child's Bible. Jesus standing on the shore and some of his disciples, fishermen, in the boat. But underneath the picture are words from a text. They're the words that Peter says. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. It comes from Luke chapter 5 and verse 5 which records for us the time that Jesus was engaged in his public ministry, but he hadn't yet called the 12 to himself. We know that um, they must have known about Jesus and his ministry before. For instance, we know that Andrew who was one of the fishermen, Peter's brother, was actually a disciple of John the baptizer. And following John, until the time then John points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From that moment, Andrew leaves John to follow Jesus. And the one thing he does, he brings his brother, you must meet this man. Surely this is the Messiah. And for some time these these uh, various uh, followers are tagging on to Jesus, but they haven't yet made a full commitment to follow. It was not unusual in those days for there to be teachers, rabbis, that would draw people to them, who would become their disciples. They would eat, sleep, live with them. They would learn from them. They would go everywhere with them. But to do so was a great commitment. It meant giving up your normal life. And one day we're told Jesus was standing by the lake and there were people crowding round him. And he thought the best thing to do was to get into a boat and guess who was there? Well, there was Peter and Andrew, James and John, that little uh, company of fishermen. And so they knew Jesus. So when Jesus says, can I get into your boat, Peter? And Peter lets him get in, and they pull out for a while so that he can see the people on the shore and Jesus can teach them. So he sits in the boat and teaches them. And when he's finished and dismisses the crowd, he says to Peter, Now pull out into the deep and let's go fishing. And Peter says, Lord, I've been up all night and I've caught absolutely nothing. The fish aren't nibbling at the nets, you know. It's, it's going to be a pointless task. But, because you say so, I will. What's a carpenter telling a fisherman what to do and where to fish? If he was given a flea in the air, you could understand it, couldn't you? But Peter, by this time, has come to understand something enough about Jesus. He's perhaps seen him heal the sick. He certainly heard him teach. Well, come on, he was, he was stand, uh, sitting in his own boat. So he couldn't avoid the teaching that Jesus was giving. And there was something about Jesus that makes him say, Okay, we've caught nothing tonight, but because you say so, I will. And so they go out into the deep. I mean, it's broad daylight by now. If they've caught nothing at night, I'm not a fisherman, so hey, I don't know when is the best time to catch fish if you're uh, living by a lakeside. But they put the nets down And the next thing, they're struggling. They're struggling because the net is absolutely full of fish. And it's, you know, where have all these fish come from? Do you know Peter's reaction? He falls at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The next thing... He's calling to the others, come and help us, come and help us to bring all these fish to the shore. And that's the key moment for these men who have witnessed this. Andrew, Peter, James, John. From that moment, they pull their boats up on the shore for the last time. And from that moment, they follow Jesus. I used to before I got into bed I would stand and look at that picture and I would say nevertheless at thy word I will well all the things I don't want to do Lord but if you tell me to do something I'll do it if you want me to do something I'll do it and that's the point we may have to get to. When we recognize that Jesus has all authority, that was where I'd got to at 14, that I must submit to his authority. I must follow a path of obedience. I'm 17 years old. And I embark on four years of a bit of a roller coaster road, ups and downs, sometimes going fast, sometimes slow. It revolves around the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Something happened in our church. There were people with, I can only describe them as sparkly eyes. Something had happened in their lives. Now, one was the curate, the new curate we had, and his wife. They were sparkly-eyed people. When they spoke of Jesus, their faces just lit up. They glowed. And I noticed there were one or two others. And do you know, whenever I see someone knowing Jesus and just rejoicing in him, I want to talk to that person. I want to know more about their experience, So I went to the curate, after a while, and I said to him, I'd really love to hear um, what's been going on in your life. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I've been forbidden to speak about this. I'm not allowed to preach about this subject from the pulpit, and I'm not to share with anyone either what has happened in my life. Because the subject was controversial at the time. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. The vicar and his wife were not sparkly-eyed people. For the first time, I came up against the, the problem of, of what we would say, that the two sides in this matter. They're, they're those who are cessationists. They believe that the not all the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but just the spectacular ones, the unusual ones, all those finished with the age of the apostles. And then there are others, and they were coming in the Church of England through what was then the renewal movement, who said there is a second blessing for Christians. There is something more and it comes about through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Over the next four years, I'm going to be grappling with this issue. I go off to uni in North Wales, and it is, I wouldn't say it's the, the, where all the cessationists were gathered in one place. I, I enjoyed the ministry. It was reformed, solid, biblical teaching, I heard at university. I grew in my knowledge, my understanding of my faith at that time in a wonderful way. But every now and again, I would, I would be thinking about this subject. Occasionally, I went to a Pentecostal church. I spoke with um, people who were Pentecostal by background, and this was part of their experience. And all kinds of, of things. I say it was a bit of a roller coaster. Up, down, fast times, slow times. All wanting to understand about this. And it came right through to a, f- a few weeks before my final exams. I'm sitting in my room and I'm reflecting on Isaiah's prophecy, prophesy, Prophecies about the Messiah. And I'm reading in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, familiar words that we often read at Christmas. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I had some study notes. The note said I should, when it talks about uh, the, David's throne, I should go and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I turned over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there was something in me that said, don't just read that verse, read the whole chapter, which I would recommend to anyone. And it's a wonderful uh, outline of what happens with, with David. At this time in David's life, he is at peace. There are no wars to fight. There are no enemies. David always gets into trouble when he's got no one to fight. And on this occasion, he comes up with a plan. I live in a splendid palace. I think the ark ought to go into a special building. I'm going to build a temple for the ark of God. Why should we be worshipping in a tent after all these years? I have the the wealth uh, to do it. And there's a prophet at the time who is advising him, guy called Nathan and he says that sounds good to me too you know go ahead with it the Lord bless you well that very night God says to Nathan what on earth are you saying that to David for have I told you to encourage him David's not going to build me a house I've got in mind someone who will build me a house and it won't be a man of war it won't be a man whose hands are covered in blood it will be a man of peace He will build a temple for me. David's had a good plan, but it's not according to my purpose. So the next day, Nathan has to go to the king with his tail between his legs and say, oops, sorry, I advised you wrongly. It's not God's plan for you. And so he tells him what God's plan is. Now, David could have become angry and he could have complained about the whole thing. But having been revealed to him what God's will is, what he chooses to do is to worship. And he goes into the place of worship and he thanks the Lord God for making his will known to him. Thank you for telling me about this so that I'm not doing anything against your will. This hit me with, with power. You see, if we pray knowing the will of God, it will be done. So often our Problems in prayer because we do not know the will of God. Well, actually, we do. Scripture tells us quite a number of things about God's will. We can pray confidently in those things. But often it's the personal issues in life, isn't it? Am I right to be doing this? Is it right to take that step? So I'm on my knees in my room and I'm praising God for what He's done. And I said, Lord, I just want to be in your will. The first thing I think of is my finals in a few weeks' time. Lord, what's your will for me with regard to these? And I just sense the Lord say, I haven't brought you here to this point to leave you now. I'm going to be with you. The next thing that comes to mind, strange how the mind works, some friends in the Christian Union are going to get married fairly soon, you know, the summer is lined up and I think, Lord you know, when I came to uni I said you know, will I meet my life partner and here I was just for my finals still a single guy and um, well the Lord just seemed to say to me it's okay, she's not here I'm preparing her Elsewhere. You'll meet. And then, then, it was only then, third on the list, that suddenly I thought, Lord, what is your will for me in regard to this baptism in the Spirit? You know, what is the right thing? What should I be praying? What should I be doing? And then it happened. Because I was seeking to know his will. I don't know, I I wouldn't say... I'm not a, a different class of Christian. I believe all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit within you. That's what I believe. And yet, and yet, I know that there is always more for all of us to have. And I won't talk about that too much. It's, it's rich and it's deep. These are life lessons for me I'm a Christian, many of you are Christians, but these life experiences for me are rooted in scripture. And all these life lessons are to be continued. I haven't finished yet, I'm only 21, okay? <laughs> Warning, let me know if, if you appreciate this or not. Because, but I want you, yourself, to think what your lessons in a Christian life are? And can you use them so that if anybody asked you about being a Christian, you could could use them to frame your own testimony? Or what if you haven't yet begun yet? There are people who are going to be here to pray at the end of the service. Do come and speak with them and You can always speak to me if I haven't put you off too much already. Let's draw that to a close by singing our final song.
1: So we're
2: going to just ponder at the end uh, of the the grace. So the image of the three crosses is sticking in my mind, and this grace that we don't deserve. Um, so we're going to continue in some worship, and um, but it is part of our prayer time as we sort of consider our response to what Peter has said and what we've sung today. Uh, we'll sing wonderful grace. Uh, and then our prayer pray a blessing, and, uh, and then we've got a, a final song, which you don't need to participate in, but if you want to come forward and uh, have some ministry, so we've got members of the prayer team who will pray with you at the, at the front here, and uh, it'd be really good to give the things that you've heard God speaking to you, or that you'd like to question, or you'd like to receive prayer about to God. So let's stand to sing our final song.